Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire, Humanizing the Narrative podcast. The episode you are listening to features John Beebe as our guest. He currently serves as the Assistant Chief to Training and Operations for the Central Matsu Fire Department in Alaska. He began his fire service career in 1999 as a paid on-call responder with the neighboring Palmer Fire Department, while at the same time building navigation and communication towers and performing electrical work on remote Alaskan runways for the FAA. He obtained his paramedic license in 2002 and was hired as a career EMS battalion chief for the Central Matsu FD in 2005. In 2012, fire and EMS split, becoming two separate agencies. With firefighting always his passion, he accepted the position of training captain for the CMSFD in 2013 and has worked his way up to his current role as assistant chief of training and operations. In addition to completing various trainings and certifications, Beebe has nearly completed a bachelor's in fire service administration. So Chief, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. I have to mention that as a native New Yorker, Alaska is the furthest thing to what I'm familiar with and likely to much of our listening audience. So can you share a little bit about your early life and when and why you chose a career in the fire service? Yeah, so my dad was, uh, he retired as the fire suppression supervisor for the state of Alaska for wildland firefighting. So growing up, I never, I never really saw my dad from about May until October because he was on type one teams and area command teams and everything. So in all honesty, that was the last career that I was interested in. And I worked for FAA and I built navigation and communication towers all over the state of Alaska and rural Alaska. And part of the team makeup was somebody had to be a rescue climber on the team. So I was the new guy on the team. So I was the one that was kind of all told to go to rescue school. So I went to rescue school and within a year, we had uh, a teen hang himself from one of our towers out in remote Alaska. So they dispatched me as a rescue climber for FAA to go affect that rescue. And by the time I got there, the local fire department had affected the rescue. I still had to do the inspection on the tower and everything, but just responding to that just kind of sparked something inside me. So literally I got back from that trip, went down to my local volunteer fire department and signed up like, I mean, within a week of being back from that. So that just the excitement of it, just knowing that I had a skill set at the time that was able to affect something in a in such a remote part of Alaska that that you know was pretty uncommon at the time was it was very cool for me. So that was my intro to the fire service right there. So I got really attracted to the rescue side of the house and really put a lot of my focus on the heavy rescue aspect of it and uh, the truck work and things like that. And that was in 1999 and in 2005 I got hired as a full-time paramedic firefighter with the fire department that I'm at now. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I do want to talk a little bit more about your work on communication towers. You previously described living in Alaska as an outdoorsman's playground. Can you tell us what life in Alaska is like throughout the year and generally who calls the state home? To kind of give you a glimpse, you know, starting in January, we have a cabin, a remote cabin that we spend a lot of time with in the wintertime. Yeah, we do a lot of snow machining, snow, snowmobiling, I guess, what you would know it as. You know, temperatures regularly 30 below at our cabin. It's uh, That's not uncommon at all. So February, pretty much the same, starting to get a little bit more daylight in the, in the daytime. January, we're looking at maybe five hours of daylight. That starts improving towards uh, the end of February. And then March, you know, the weather gets into, you know, 20s, 30s above. And it's just absolutely amazing. We uh our cabin, our, our ride to Denali National Park. I, I sent you a picture of a bunch of us riding, and the mountain in the background is that way, is actually Denali. So uh, super remote, very quiet, very peaceful out there. And uh, you know, we just we just ride around out there and have a good time in the snow. And April and May, not a great month to be in Alaska because everything's kind of melting. It's not warm enough to do anything. It's not cold enough to do anything. So. Kind of just, you know, do a lot of indoor activities, a lot of cards, a lot of working out, staying in shape, staying in the gym. And then June, July, and August, we do a lot of rafting and uh, being on the water and just enjoying family and friends and things like that. And a lot of hunting in the fall and then kind of reset, get, get ready for wintertime by October. So it's that's kind of the routine. Again, it's the furthest thing from what I'm familiar with coming from New York City. So thank you for painting a vivid picture for us. You bet. So can we discuss your job working on communications towers and electrical work in remote Alaska? Sure. So again, that was with the Federal Aviation Administration, and I, I was actually hired as a mechanic and a diesel mechanic. That's what my, my trade, that's what I am uh, before the fire service. And they needed a, a guy. One of the tower teams was short a guy. So I applied for it and happened to get on it. It was pretty not super competitive, but they don't take, you know, just everybody that wants to be on the team. So I knew some guys on the team and had worked with them on a couple other projects as far as generator installs and electrical distribution systems and things like that. So kind of fell into that, so to say, and going to tower school, I had to go to tower school, you know, basically learn about the parts and the concepts and different types of towers, whether they were freestanding or guy wire towers and what the limitations were. You know, then we had to go into the geography a little bit on how to, what type of geography we're looking for to stand the tower. So we had to do everything from the ground up. We had to build the road, we had to build the pad, we had to set the tower. Uh, so it was a lot of work. And by roads, I don't mean like a road, like a paved highway or anything. I'm talking like just a road to get a four-wheeler down or some other type of all-terrain vehicle maybe. Did some helicopter jobs, which we really liked because they were just a lot faster for us to do and that we didn't have to have the... Uh, all the equipment. But I think the most challenging part of that is when you're, you know, you're, we're literally hundreds of miles from our shop and a lot of forethought has to go into that. You, ha you have to be prepared for it. You have to have the right clothes, depending on time of the year. You have to have the right equipment, depending on the type of power you're building. You have to have the right tools and all that stuff has to be in place before you leave because if it's not, the job it doesn't get done or it's a lot of delays because some of it was barge work, some of it we could fly to, some of it we could have, like I said, helicopter access to and things like that. So 
there was a lot of preparation that went into into our job. So a lot of uh, real attention to detail and making sure we had everything squared away uh, at the very beginning of the job. I was going to ask about the risks involved. Yeah. So once you're out there, you got to do it right because if you mess up an anchor or you you mess up one of your uh, one of your lanyards or you know somebody gets hurt, it's a it's a real big deal. Minor injury in remote Alaska turns into a really really complex situation that that requires a whole lot of logistics that are typically days away from from help. So you got to be dialed in, I guess, so to say. What were some of the lessons you learned about leadership and performance based on that experience? One of the biggest leadership things that I that I think I recognized right off the bat was everybody checks everybody. You can't get offended by it. You know, if I if I supposed to bring all my rescue equipment and I forgot something, that's not okay, right? You you have to have all your stuff. So before we left, everybody kind of checked everybody's kit, so to say, made sure everybody had what what we all needed. And uh, we usually took two of everything, kind of the whole one is none, two is one kind of scenario. So just a lot of preparation. And I remember one job we had that uh, was in Farewell Lake, absolutely hands down to this day, the most beautiful place I've ever been in my life. It's about 400 air miles from Anchorage. The only way to get there was a small airplane. So it was several trips for us to get all of our stuff in there. And this was actually a demo job from an airport that wasn't being used anymore. So we got stuck in McGrath for several days, so we were way behind schedule. So what uh, the foreman decided to do was there's a part of the tower called the top hat, and that's kind of where the antennas and some of the electrical uh, components come in to the top of the tower, and it looks kind of like a catwalk on the top of the tower, like a big square. And we'd always taken that top hat off before we had lowered that section of the tower because all we were using was gen poles which is basically like a, a pole with a pulley on top of it that had a three to one system on it that we could raise each section of the tower set it to the side and then lower it down well the foreman wanted to save time and decided to leave the top hat on and as soon as we got it hooked up rigged up to the gen pole as soon as the top hat swung to the side of the tower the gen pole broke and about hit the guy that was disassembling it on the top. So huge lesson there was w when you're doing something super critical, there's no shortcut. Like you, you, you have to do it the right way. You have to ABC it every single time, because if you don't, somebody's going to get hurt. And, uh, you know, the guy didn't get hurt. I have no idea how he didn't get hurt, but uh, it was a big deal. But that was a big reset for us because now we had to take apart another tower make a gen pole out of the pieces of that tower. So that was another, you know, probably half a day of delays because now we had to fix what we had broke. And that was kind of a big thing for me. So I kind of apply that approach to my leadership style, I guess now, so to say, after seeing that, it's like, there's no, you can't shortcut things. You have to do it, you have to do it the right way. And you have to do it, you know, I don't want to say the same way every time, but you have to have a pattern. You have to have a thought process and that should be followed every time you, you go to do a job. That's definitely a transferable lesson learned, especially in the fire service. I wanted to take a moment to humanize what the job is like in your area. And you were explaining that a lot of transplants are coming to Alaska, how you were drawn to the fire service. Ultimately, what types of people are drawn to become first responders in Alaska? Yeah, I think... 
what I've really noticed, you know, going to classes, you know, with FDIC and other classes uh, in Lower 48, is everybody has a me on their job. Everybody has a Brandon on their job. Everybody has a Brian on their job, you know. So I don't know that the person, so to say, is unique to Alaska as far as the job goes. I think the person may be unique to Alaska as far as their interests. So as far as their tolerance to to darkness and their tolerance to cold weather and things that should normally be easy, but they're not because of your environment or because of the resources that you were limited to. Uh, so I think that's more of the person that's attracted to the fire service in Alaska is just that that outdoorsman. But I think, you know, just what I've what I've seen and what my experiences are is, you know, we're all firemen. And it seems like we're all have the same base personality, regardless of whether we're working, you know, for FDNY or, you know, Central Matsu Fire Department, Alaska. So I think it's, uh, I think the personality is kind of shared. I think it's your personal interest, maybe, that is the difference. Makes sense. I wanted to flush out, you just touched on it, how your department is organized and what kind of fire and emergency activity you see. Okay, so... I work for a small combination department. We've got about 80 operational guys, uh, 30 of those are career, 10 career officers, fire marshals, things like that. And then the rest of them are made up as paid on call. And the way we run our paid on call system is that in itself is also kind of two tiered where we have guys that run shifts with our career guys. Uh, they schedule 24 hour shifts. They're assigned to ABC shift. They run with their guys. They have the same chain of command. Uh, set, set up and then we have the people that can't commit to that so there are tender operators or they, they come in on Tuesday night training and then they answer the call from their house like a traditional volunteer firehouse or something like that so that's kind of how the makeup that's a very short version of the makeup of our fire department types of calls that we respond to you know I mean obviously we have the structure fires you know both residential and commercial uh, we're, we're fairly busy think we had, I mean, fairly busy to a lot of people listening to this. It's probably going to sound, sound slow, but, uh, you know, in October, we had 18 working structure fires just in our own area. And for our department, that's that's pretty busy. So we average about 57 working structure fires a year, just this our department. So uh, not counting mutual aid and auto aid. So we have those. Obviously, we kind of, we're kind of seasonal. So we, we'll go through October, we'll see a, a uptick in structure fires is because people are their furnaces are kicking in or they're starting their wood stoves for the first time of the year maybe they didn't clean their pipe very well or you know whatever the case might be there um, alternate fuel sources alternate heat sources rather is kind of a big deal for us where we have a lot of people that have a, they're using electric base heaters uh, they're using propane heaters inside so co becomes a big issue especially with the five-star rated homes we have big co problems up there Lots and lots of CO calls. Uh, last year, we had a lot of natural gas leaks because we had such a big snowfall last year. And it was actually shearing the pipes of the gas meters off right at the house. So what was happening was the gas was going into people's houses. So we had a, we had a house that blew up last year uh, due to natural gas being inside the structure. And... That was probably our most extreme call we, we had last year. Um, obviously, MVAs, we start running a lot of MVAs uh, as soon as the, the snow melts, we, or as soon as the snow comes. Running a lot of MVAs, 
moose. Uh, Jason loves our moose stories. You know, we get a lot of vehicle versus moose, and that's uh, that's a big deal. You hit a 2,000-pound moose with a car, and people get hurt. So that's one of our mainstays probably from November through March, maybe. It's a pretty common call for us. And I live in an area where it's kind of a, a suburban area, so we get a lot of urban interface calls. We get a lot of wildland calls that interface with residential neighborhoods and things like that. So it keeps us keeps us busy. So we kind of have our seasonal seasonal jobs that we definitely have to set our apparatus up for to you know to prepare for because we know that we're just it's that time of year and we're just going to start running on them. Oh my gosh, I, I'm so interested in unpacking the difference between emergency operations in Alaska and those of an urban setting, what are some of the formidable challenges that responders encounter in Alaska? You've touched on some of them, like geography, distance, uh, rural water supply. I'm dying to know how that works. <laughs> well, we have some hydranted areas. We have a couple hydranted areas in our, in our neighborhood, in our response area. Doesn't seem to be where the fires are, but we, we have the hydrants. Uh, so we use a lot of tender shuttles and we use we use F500 as a, a suppressing agent. And that that really is kind of like a force multiplier for us. That's a big thing for us. But we really just kind of we have to keep the water moving. We have to be really selective on the nozzles that we use. We have to get the, the you know, the type of fire that we're we're suppressing. We've got to get that right. Is this an inch and three quarter fire? Is it a two and a half fire? Are we going to go master streams right off the bat? and and that becomes really a critical decision because if you go to a two and a half where, you know, an inch and three quarter, maybe a little bit more directed and a little bit more mobile might have put out more fire than a two and a half and conserved your water. So, you know, no one, if, you know, you go straight to work with a two and a half, you got to have a tender right behind it because you're going to run out of water real quick. So that's a lot of thought process going into it. So that first new captain really has to be on his game as far as like being able to figure out what he's looking at what type of GPM we're going to need, uh, how involved the structure is, the type of structure, you know, things like that. So uh, little little things like that become a real big deal for us because that's the difference between, you know, losing a house and saving a house is, you know, the right, the right water application. Definitely. Forgive me if you already mentioned this. How large is your response area? Uh, we're about 135, 140 square miles. So two, two staff stations and they're about eight, nine miles apart and that doesn't sound like a terrible long distance but if the roads are bad that's uh that's a critically long distance so it's uh you know resources are always cherished for us i mean we have to make do with what we have because there's just you know there's kind of nobody coming so to say we have some smaller departments on either side of us that do the best they can and they, they really do a good job for us as well as far as you know giving us some people in your opinion, does operating at fires and emergencies in rural and even isolated environments require a unique mindset and operational philosophy? You know what? The funny you mentioned that because yesterday I looked at my wife and asked her, how in the hell do they fight fire down here? <laughs> Well, first, let's just uh, explain to the listeners where you are right now. <laughs> oh, I'm in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, which is a little further south than Alaska. <laughs> uh, so, you know, with that being said, I think it's just it's about acclimation and it's about understanding, you know, your equipment and, you know, the apparatus. Our apparatus is set up for 
cold weather environment, we have pump house heaters on our apparatus. Um, we use a lot of antifreeze to keep things from, from freezing up. Uh, we always leave everything running. Uh, you know, the bells are always cracked on fires until we get, um, until we get done with the job. And that's just to keep everything from, from thawing out. But, you know, I think it, it's kind of funny because it's just, that's just the job, right? That's just what we do. And, you know, trudging through two or three feet of snow to get to the Charlie side of the house. It's just, that's just part of the deal. And it's just what we're used to, I guess. So I don't, I don't know. Frostbite is always a big thing. Hypothermia is always a big thing for us. So it's, it's, you know, a lot of buddy check-in, a lot of really actually looking at your, at your buddy, making sure that they're not getting frostbite, especially, you know, uh, around the face or the ears, um, you know, just exposed areas like that. So we just, we just have to keep a real close eye on each other. So with the mindset taking care of itself sort of intuitively as the chief, or I should say the assistant chief of training and operations, how do you mm -hmm. prepare members for the tactical, physical, and mental challenges that they'll potentially encounter in fires and emergencies? Yeah, so we're big. We're real big on physical fitness in our department. 1582 physicals every year. Uh, the guys are paid an hour to hit the gym. And that's, you know, during business hours, obviously, they're free to do more than that. Uh, how we run our academies, uh, we run our our Firefighter One Academy, we run that in late fall, and it just kind of prepares them, because at that point, it's not really, it's not critically cold, but it gets cold enough towards the end of their academy where they get it, where they understand that, you know, frozen water causes ice, makes it slicker than really difficult to stand up on. Uh, so you have to be real careful on where, where your nozzle placements are as far as, you know, because like I said, we leave the, the nozzles cracked all the time, so... We want to make sure that we're not putting that right in the middle of everybody's walkway and keep everything, you know, kind of squared away like that. We just really kind of kind of expose them to that during their during their training. So they understand that, you know, it's cold and it's it's dangerous when it's cold. Not only, you know, the job itself, but now we have the environment to deal with. We have, you know, wind. We live in a very windy area, so it's not uncommon for us to see 70, 80 mile an hour winds with it being, you know, Five ten below zero, so it's that's all pretty common for us to to kind of deal with, and I think you just develop just a men mental aptitude for it. You know, you just you know that the job's got to get done, and you you kind of put the suck factor aside for a while and and get the job done the best you can. Yeah, when I was reporting in the field, sometimes my assignment editor would call me with an assignment, and I would stand there and say, "You're asking me to make the impossible possible." Yeah. I had a, a a support system of other reporters and assignment editors who I would talk to about this. And in those moments, we had a mantra, you're the creator of your own destiny. Yes, yep. <laughs> yes it sucks. Yes, it's nearly impossible. But the longer you complain and resist it, the longer you're out there and they're still going to be waiting for that, you know, assignment, that deadline, right. just meet it. Just get it done. Yep. Stop complaining. So that uh, problem solving mindset definitely was instilled in me in the early part of my career. And it comes right. down to you're the creator of your own destiny. That is a true statement. You know, and I, I tell the guys pretty regularly when, when we're in training, it's like, you know, when I hear them start complaining about being cold, I'm like, yeah, you know what? You're cold. I'm cold. We're all cold. And there's no reason to complain about it. We, we just got to get the job done. You got to stay focused on it because what happens 
is if you start focusing on your environment, you start focusing on your own physical discomfort. Now the focus is off the job and it's not where it's supposed to be. So then now people are going to get hurt. So it's just a matter of keeping those guys locked in and understand that, you know, it's, it is miserable. I, I totally agree with you. It is absolutely miserable, but it's not going to do any of us any good to, to focus on, on, on that part of it. Right. You gotta, you gotta stay engaged with the job. Yeah. I wanted to give some attention to EMS because you also served as an ALS provider. What are the challenges EMS providers face in your response area? It's it's been a long time since I've been in an ambulance, so I don't you know this is all going to be old information as from you know where when I was uh, when I was responding as a paramedic. I'm, I'm no longer a paramedic. We my fire department only responds to major medical and major trauma, so we don't do transport, so we don't respond to you know minor medical or minor minor trauma. But, you know, back then, and I'm going back 10 years now, but back then it was just the distances to everything. Uh, the distances, uh, the complexity to find addresses. Uh, you know, a lot of people that move to Alaska, we call them into the rotors. They, you know, they move to Alaska for a reason. They don't want to be around people. They, they just want to kind of live in isolation. So a lot of times just locating them was was very challenging. <laughs> a lot of really small driveways, really long driveways that just, you know, you think that are just trails to, you know, somewhere end up being somebody's driveway. So, you know, finding them, uh, the distances between them and the hospital was always a big deal. So, you know, being a paramedic back then, you know, it wasn't like, you know, we were a paramedic for five minutes. We were, you know, oftentimes a paramedic for, you know, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. And that's in my area. And then when you start getting rule of me, you start getting, you know, north of me a hundred miles and it just adds to that. So, that brings in life flights and a lot of helicopter use and things like that for real critical patients. But it was, you know, it's kind of some extended, extended care times, you know, compared to uh, some of the other paramedics that I've talked to. Yeah. It just seems like a lot of physical and cognitive bandwidth is expended before you even get to the operation. It, it can be, you know, it's just that whole, you know, your your approach to a call and route is just as important as your actions on the call on scene. So when you can't find somebody that has the, you know, has a critical issue going on, that stresses you out because you 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 want to get there as quickly as you can. So now you have that stress factor and now you have finally getting to them, that stress factor. And then, okay, how am I going to get them in the ambulance now? Do I got to call an engine, cause a further delay if, you know, for more manpower and things like that. So a lot of that stuff is, you know, you really have to do a lot of a lot of there's a lot of thought press process and a lot of calming yourself down, which is why I really like the breathing techniques uh, that we discussed in, at the farm this year, because a lot of that stuff is really important as far as just keeping your pulse rate down, keeping yourself kind of checked in and not letting yourself not letting your mind kind of run away with all the what ifs or I'm behind and now you're getting that stress and things like that. So uh, a lot of that stuff goes, you know, goes right into play with what we do. Yeah, I want to talk about the farm in just a second, but to catch our listeners up to speed, we were just talking about offline, how you were one of the early ambassadors for leadership under fire in your department, region, mm. state. So how and why does the LUF philosophy and approach to developing leaders and enhancing human performance resonate with you? You know, kind of, kind of like I said, offline is... You know, I, I, I'm a firm believer of when you sign on the line to be a, a fireman that you're going to take certain risks and certainly not a believer in suicide missions, but I am a believer in going in 
in rescuing people. I'm a firm believer of getting water on the fire as quickly as we can, whether that be an interior attack or whether that be through the window on the way in the door based on your resources that you have that day, right? It's about getting the job done. And what I really like about leadership under fire is they take that, they take that moral stance. They take that moral belief. And it says, you know, the moral belief is we're going to expect you to do the job. And uh, leadership under fire really takes that to a, to a, a, an appropriate level. Uh, they kind of walk you through the process of, you know, the physical, mental, and, and moral aspects of, of doing the job. We have that in our, as a culture in our fire department, but we really didn't have any resources to support it, so to say. We really didn't have a model for it. It's just what we did. And Jason kind of is able to articulate that for our department and paint a really good picture of what that leadership looks like, that moral leadership looks like. Yeah, even as a civilian, having mission-oriented leadership helps me navigate situations. Sure. So that, that deeply resonated with me in terms of the leadership under fire philosophy. Mm -hmm. Yep. And since 2018, your department has sent several leaders to the LUF leadership development course on the farm in Western Maryland each fall. <laughs> For people who don't know, that's where they join leaders from across North America and even Europe at times. And you spent a week on the farm for the leadership development course just a few weeks ago, as you mentioned. What were the highlights of the course and the communal experience for you? Maybe it was me or maybe I, you know, I, uh, I wasn't used to being in a class full of people that were willing to share. <laughs> you know, a lot, of, a lot of classes you go to where it's a group setting people are really reluctant to kind of speak up and talk about, you know, how their department does things or talk about their personality in regards to their department. So one of the, the highlight for me was just to be able to listen to everybody's viewpoint uh, the day the class started and then listen to everybody's viewpoint the day the class ended. And I think that there was probably some changes there in, in some people, not not drastic changes, but just uh, maybe the ability to open up in front of people that they didn't know. I, my class was really sharing like that. I mean, it was just a very cool class. So a lot of a lot of highlights are we had a we had a great time in that class. But just seeing that people listening to to Jason and Eric and talk about their experiences and talk about how to you know the moral implications of of solid leadership. You know, I think that that resonated with a lot of people. Yeah, I unfortunately didn't attend, but the feedback I heard was the same that you just shared. Yeah, uh, you know, I think, I don't really want to bring it up too much, but, you know, I think the, the, the incident in Baltimore during the class, I think that kind of hit us hard. Uh, we had a line of duty death in our department here a couple of years ago, and that, uh, not to take anything away from Baltimore, but I think it just, it it made a connection, you know, right there, and it was, it was that was pretty powerful, but you know, to be with those guys that night and, uh, you know, just to know that everybody was there, everybody was pulling for each other was, that was, that was really cool. Yeah. As a chief of training and operations, I think that you would agree it's undoubtedly a challenging time for leaders in the fire service, but also yeah. exciting time. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, no longer is the, the leadership just, you know, focused on scene operations. There's a, there's a whole lot that more goes uh, goes into it now. You know, we're 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 expected to know a lot of personnel issue uh, 
kind of labor law issues and uh, you know with all the the new social climate you know we're expected to stay on top of all that in addition to keeping up with you know keeping sharp on everything else as far as being on the scene and being a training officer now it's you know the trend in adult education has changed you know drastically since i became the training officer so you know we didn't use a whole lot of technology when i first started it was just all you know hands-on and very much um you know kind of old school thought process as far as adult education and and now now we really rely on technology to pique the interest of some of our future leaders because that's just not the way that a lot of the the up and comers are are learning. You know, they they want to have the the command training centers. They want to have the virtual reality goggles. They want to have, you know, the I don't want to downplay them at all, but you know, they want to have like the video game approach to it. You know, so how do you how do you connect with them? while still maintaining a sense of, you know, tradition, traditional training in the fire service. So big challenge. So we, we've got a, we've got a command training center that we use in the wintertime uh, and just do a lot of simulations and use virtual reality goggles and let them, let them kind of do their thing, you know, as far as being on the scene and, and fighting the fire, making those decisions. So keeps them engaged. It's kind of like they're, it's kind of like that connection between the, the old guys and the, and the young guys, I guess, so to say. Yeah, I mean, I started working with the FDNY about 10 years ago. And at that time, the Bureau of Training requested that we take at least 56 probe skills and create videos so that probies could watch mm -hmm. the videos to learn mm -hmm. how to tie knots and things like that. And I remember thinking back to when I was even younger watching some of my friends, brothers or fathers studying for the test and having books open on, you know, the dining room table mm -hmm. and trying to tie their knots and try to figure out the diagram. <laughs> yeah. And so when I was given that request to digitize the books, I had that sort of debate in my mind. Am I helping or am I enabling? And ultimately you have to keep up with the younger generation, give them the tools they need to succeed. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, I, I have a, our training captain for our department is uh, really good with all the video stuff. And he's, he's really, he's really adopted that for himself. And he's, he's doing those videos and putting them out on, you know, our, our uh, central Matsu training Facebook page for the guys to be able to access. And, mm -hmm. you know, when he first told me that I'm like, come on, man, that, that's not, that's not who we are, bro. Right. And then, and, but then when I realized that, how, how much of a resource that is to these guys, especially being a paid on call department, because we have, we have a lot of great paid on call guys that they just can't run shifts because of their career jobs and everything else, but they're excellent firefighters when they show up. And it really helps those guys stay connected with the department. It helps them stay on top of their skills. And it kind of just kind of gives them an idea of what, of what we're doing. So now that it, the shock is over for me, you know, it's just been, it's been a really cool thing. Awesome. Before we wrap up, I wanted to finish our conversation by moving outside of the fire service. Your wife is a teacher and your son is currently serving in the army. When yep. you aren't working, how are you enjoying the Alaskan landscape together? And how has your family life impacted your leadership and philosophies on performance? Uh, you know, my, my wife is just as competitive as me. 
and sometimes that's good and other times other times it it, it creates a a learning opportunity for me i guess you could say <laughs> my son is an incredible person uh he's doing excellent he he's really excelling in his career in the military right now and i think you know for me my my wife really she she is an excellent snow machiner so we take off, you know, 70, 80 miles an hour down the trails and she's right behind me and she's just shredding as hard as I am. And it's just so in the wintertime, that's kind of our gig. I mean, we just that's what we do. We just go out in the middle of nowhere, spend four or five days at a time at the cabin and just ride as much as we can. Uh, I I love my Harley. So in the in the summertime, I, I on nice days, I'm a fair weather rider. <laughs> I don't ride in the rain. Uh, but uh you know, I, I, I do enjoy getting out on my bike and and spending a few minutes in the evenings or a weekend day, you know, riding around. Uh, my son, you know, before he left, he was an excellent hockey player. He got a couple of college scholarships and several junior team offers And when he graduated high school. And he, he was like, Dad, I'm a five foot eight goaltender. I'm not going anywhere. So he also had some academic scholarships that he chose to take and spent three years in college and then came home one day and said, Dad, I want to go to the Army. I'm like, well, I guess you're going to go to the Army. So that's that was kind of the, the thing there. But uh, he, was a, he was a super uh, talented goaltender, uh, ice hockey goaltender. And so unfortunately, that meant that he didn't do a whole lot of winter hobbies. So, so we were always, you know, tied up with hockey in the wintertime, but it's well worth it. And in the summertime, you know, we just we just love being in the motorhome. Uh, we do a lot of rafting, a little bit, not so much whitewater anymore. When I was younger, I used to be all into the whitewater, and now I'm more into the booze cruise, so to say. So it's, uh, yeah, it's you know, we just we just do things, and again, it goes back to even recreationally in Alaska. You know, you just you have to be prepared for it. You have to have to have the right equipment. You have to have the right gear. So even though it's not, we're not on the job. It's it's Alaska. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it can be a pretty hostile environment. So you, you have to make sure that you've got the right equipment. You've got to have your survival equipment with you, uh, no matter if it's 70 degrees outside or 30 below outside, you just, you just got to have your stuff with you all the time. Awesome. Well, thank you. And I look forward to hopefully meeting you in person one day. Oh, sure. Hopefully. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.